I don't know about you, but I do hate to wait. You know, the only reason I'll go to an amusement park is to be with the grandkids. No two-minute ride is worth an hour standing in line. That's just my opinion. And the most frustrating part of shopping is trying to figure out which checking line is moving the fastest. Now, I do have to admit that I've become a little more patient about waiting as I've grown older. Uh, Waiting for an anticipated event is a little bit easier because the older you get, the quicker time passes. But waiting patiently for a big event is still hard, especially if there are some unknowns in the upcoming event. Imagine how the apostles felt when they were told to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had spoken of it uh, three years earlier, but they really didn't know what to expect. It had never happened before. They weren't even told when it would happen, only that it would happen not many days from now. After Jesus said that, and after repeating their final commission, he ascended into heaven. And while they were standing there, no doubt with their mouths wide open, gazing into space, angels said to them, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. They'd been told to wait in the city. So they returned to the city and waited. But how? How do you wait for something like that? How did the apostles wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit? And how do we wait for the Lord's return? Well, let's see what they did and consider if we should be doing the same thing. The first thing we note is that they were praying. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Apparently, the ascension took place on the Mount of Olives. Exactly where on the mount, we don't know. The Church of the Ascension has been built over a depression in the rock that looks like a footprint, leaving some to believe that's where Jesus pushed off from the planet. (laughs) Ah, That's a tad ridiculous. All we know for sure is that the apostles traveled a Sabbath day journey about three-quarters of a mile from the place of Ascension back to the city and to the upper room. 
where they were staying. Most likely the upper room in which they had celebrated the Last Supper and the room into which Jesus had appeared on two occasions after the resurrection. And they were all there. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, also known as Thaddeus, or Judas not Iscariot. They were all there except for Judas Iscariot, who committed suicide after betraying Christ. Also with them were the women, most likely the band of women from Galilee who had accompanied Jesus and the apostles on many of their journeys and actually helped support them financially. Perhaps even some of the wives of the apostles. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus' brothers. Now, some are uncomfortable thinking Jesus had brothers because it goes against their belief that Mary remained a virgin for life. But in Mark 6, 3, we learn that Jesus had four brothers, technically half-brothers, sons born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. They're even named for us, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And Jesus had sisters, but we aren't told how many, and we aren't given their names. The significant thing about the brothers being there with the apostles is that during Jesus' life, his brothers didn't believe his claim to be the Son of God. How could they? He was their brother. You know, they had grown up together in the same, same house. And on one occasion, they even tried to take him back home, thinking him deluded because of the things he was saying in public. But now they believe. Apparently, the resurrection convinced even his siblings that Jesus was who he said he was. So they're all there together of one mind, devoting themselves to prayer. Now, when Luke says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer, that, that shouldn't give us the impression that they stayed in the upper room and did nothing else but pray. In his gospel, he actually tells us they were continually in the temple. Praising God. The point seems to be that wherever they were, they were praising God and praying, waiting for the promise. And contrary to the suggestion of some, I don't believe they were trying to pray down the Spirit. They weren't praying themselves into an emotional frenzy that would climax on the day of Pentecost when they would finally break through. They were simply praying. Developing and maintaining a trusting and submissive spirit. They really didn't know what to expect, but they wanted to be ready for it. So they sought to keep their hearts in tune with God. They really weren't seeking anything. They weren't even asking for anything. The promise had already been made. They were simply trying to keep their hearts and minds in tune with God and focused 
on his promises. And isn't that the primary purpose of prayer? It's not trying to get God to do something we want. It's preparing our heart so God can do what he wants in our life. And I'm convinced prayer should be more an act of submission than supplication. An expression of gratitude for God's promises and blessings, followed by expressions of desire to know and a willingness to follow His direction. Prayer is the way we ready ourselves to follow God's will. Study of His Word is the way we learn of it. So the next thing we see is the apostles studying. Verses 15 through 20. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language the field was called Hekeldema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it. And his office, let another man take. During the waiting period, when 120 believers had gathered together, most likely in a temple chamber or on the steps leading into the temple, Peter stood up and announced that he had come to some conclusions from his study of the Scriptures. He felt that some of the things the Holy Spirit had spoken through David applied to Judas. Now, obviously, David wasn't thinking of Judas when he wrote Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. He was thinking about his enemies and betrayal by his friends. But since what he was writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit, there was a good chance it had application that went far beyond David's thoughts. And Psalm 69 is obviously a messianic psalm. It speaks of one with a consuming zeal for God's house and of the reproach of those who reproach God falling on him. It also speaks of being given vinegar to drink, as was Jesus on the cross. So it wasn't a stretch to see in the psalms a reference to the one who betrayed Jesus and the need to find a replacement for him now that he was gone. He had, after all, been counted among the apostles, and there had been 12 apostles for good reason. They corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus said one day the disciples would sit on 12 thrones, judging 
the 12 tribes. But now there were only 11. Judas had hung himself. And the priests had purchased the field in which he hung himself with the 30 pieces of silver. A field that had been, been named Hakeldama, the field of blood, because it had been purchased with blood money and because Judas had apparently hung there until he decayed and fell to the ground, defiling it. Anyway, Peter had become convinced from his study of the Psalms that Judas had to be replaced. And apparently, the others agreed. Now, whether their application of these psalms to Judas and the need for them to find a replacement is correct or not is open to discussion. And we'll consider it in a minute. But at least they were trying to apply the scriptures to situations they were facing. And that is a good example for us to follow. You know, the Bible isn't merely an historical account of what God did in the past. It's also His guidebook for today. And we ought to be studying it regularly and seeking to apply it to the day-by-day situations that we face. Now, there is a danger in reading too much between the lines and looking for things that aren't there. But most of us err on the other side. All too often, we fail to apply what we do read to our life in relevant and meaningful ways. You know, God's Word is just that. It's God's Word to us. And if we would know what he has to say to us today, we must read it and appropriately apply it to the situations we're facing and the decisions we're called upon to make. The apostles sought to do that while waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And we too must be studying God's word while we wait. That's not the end of it. Not only were they praying and studying, they were quite simply acting. Verses 21 through 26. Peter is continuing here. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these would become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Peter had determined it was time for action. It was time to act, time to find a replacement for Judas, someone 
to bring their number back up to 12. And he determined that in order for someone to be numbered with them as a a fellow witness to the resurrection, they would have to have been with the rest of them the whole time they had been following Jesus, from the baptism of John until the ascension. Apparently, there were two men who met that criterion. Two men who, while not being numbered with the twelve, had always been there following Jesus and learning at his feet. Now, there were many more who had been there part of the time. On one occasion, Jesus commissioned 70 men to go out two by two and prepare the way for his coming. But apparently, Joseph, also known as Barsabas or Justice, and Matthias were the only two who had been there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry until the very end. So these two were put forth by the apostles or the 120, and it was time to choose between them. Now, they didn't want it to be their choice, but God's. So they used a method they assumed would reveal God's choice. Prayer and the casting of lots. They prayed that God's will would be done and then used a method for determining God's will that had been used In the Old Testament, they drew lots. Now, how they actually did it, we don't know. The high priest had used the Urim and Thummim to determine God's will, but we really don't even know what they were. They they may have been nothing but a couple of stones inscribed with yes or no. The apostles may have used something similar. Or they may have simply put both names in a hat and drawn one. Whatever they did, they were confident that God would make his will known through it. And Proverbs 16.33 does say, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. One word of caution, however. Nowhere in the New Testament are we instructed to draw lots to determine God's will today. And this is the last example we find of it being done in Scripture. So while God may honor the putting out of a fleece, we have no assurance that we can determine God's will today from a physical sign or even a spiritual sign for that matter. It's possible that what Peter suggested was the course of action God desired. But then again, it may not have been. Tradition tells us that Matthias did become a missionary to Ethiopia, but Scripture records nothing more of him than what we've read. It's possible that Peter had acted prematurely. Perhaps he should have waited for the Holy Spirit to actually come upon them before presuming to know what the Spirit wanted them to do. In fact, many believe Peter was right in his understanding that a replacement would need to be found for Judas, but that Paul was the one God actually chose. And Luke 
doesn't say Matthias became the 12th apostle, only that he was numbered with the 11, a subtle but perhaps significant distinction. But whatever the case, the apostles acted upon what they thought they had determined to be the will of God from a study of His Word. They didn't just pray and study the Word while waiting for the promise. They acted upon what they thought God wanted them to do. And so should we. While waiting for the promised return of our Lord, we too should be continually devoting ourselves to prayer. Praying in a way that keeps God's promises alive and our hearts surrendered to His will. And we must seek to know and understand His will by staying in the Word. You know, for 11 months of the year, we close our worship service with reminder that God's Word is to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let's make certain we keep the light on. And then, as we discern from God's Word what we believe God's will to be, acknowledging that we do walk by faith and not by sight and might be in error, we nevertheless do what we believe God would have us do. Even if we've misread a passage or misunderstood its application to the situation we're facing, God will know that we have acted in faith. And I'm convinced he will honor our faith by using us to accomplish his purposes even if we don't fully understand them. Bottom line, like the apostles, we should be praying, studying, and acting as we await the coming of the promise. They were awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we are awaiting the return of our Lord. The Spirit came as promised, and we have every assurance that Jesus is coming again. Until that day, let's await His return by praying, studying, and acting in ways He would have us act. Let's commit ourselves to that. Let's stand and sing.